Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. Welcome to another, well, this is a cold week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire Zauke is with us. Claire is our Healthcare Director here at Citizen Action. Claire, great to have you. Thank you. Good to be here with y'all. And Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action is with us. Robert, good to see you. Uh, good day, everyone. Good not to be in Ukraine. Oh, well, Robert, that's uh, <laughs> that's uh, it's a rough segue to our, our first conversation. Uh, it, it, it's that kind of morning. Um, I think everybody knows most of our hardcore listeners. We uh, record Thursday morning. Uh, so we are less than 24 hours removed from, uh, as Robert mentioned, uh, the invasion has has started uh with russia into ukraine we will talk a little bit more we're going to start with that do want to just preview a few other things there's a number of uh bills that we have to discuss that uh, moved through the legislature this week on a number of issues that we care deeply about both public education the right to vote <laughs> and, and, and other issues so we're going to talk more about that later um we do want to alert our listeners to know there's going to be a, a big rally this Saturday up in Oshkosh in support of the UAW workers at Oshkosh Company. We'll briefly talk about that at the end and we'll have details on that, but want to encourage folks to go to that this Saturday at noon in Oshkosh. So with that though, let's, um, let's talk about what is on everybody's mind, uh, not only here in Wisconsin, but um, throughout the country and throughout the world. Uh, so it's, I think a lot of us had hoped it wouldn't come to this, that, you know, maybe President Biden and our allies that we were being a little bit, uh, shall we say, warmongering and threatening and trying to, you know, overstate maybe what was going to happen. But it does appear as of this morning that um, Putin and, and Russia have invaded Ukraine and have moved in. Uh, and so I wanted to just create a little space for our panel uh, to discuss this. Robert, I'm going to go to you first, just because I know, you know, you've you spent 13 years on a public television, international focus show. You spend a lot of time thinking about these. Not that Claire and I don't, but just wanted to go to you. We will respond <laughs> to, to your thoughts uh, first on just what is historic events uh, today in uh, Eastern Europe. Well, number of thoughts. I mean, I my undergraduate degree is in international relations. I almost went into that field, foreign service or academically. Um, had been a pundit on this and also studied kind of the end of the Cold War and the failure to move past the Cold War stance after the Cold War ended, uh, which is part of the cause of all this NATO expanding when it, rather than going to a whole new model once the Soviet Union had fallen, right? And also, quite frankly, a lot of American billionaires participated in the kleptocracy taking over and gained from it. Donald Trump is one of those billionaires or claimed billionaires that have tried to benefit from money that was expropriated from the people of Russia. So there's plenty of complicity all the way around, but that does not give any cover to what Vladimir Putin is doing and lower really is hell. We haven't experienced it in this country this is horrific. People, I think, will see images on TV and begin to understand that again. My father's side of the family, actually, we lived for hundreds of years in Ukraine, Ukrainian Jews, and 
founded a fat, uh, candy, candy factory company that is still there. Our friend Stephanie Bloomingdale, uh, head of the AFL-CIO, actually brought back a box of it when she went on a labor mission to Ukraine, uh, Odessa, which, of course, has been invaded by amphibious troops. And so I just say this. You want to understand how a big lie will work if we let the American big lie continue. Uh, it is Putin's lies, horrendous propaganda, complete falsehoods justifying this, okay? And if people think that's a stretch, the Trump wing of the party is standing with Putin. Tucker Carlson, the most, impo- uh, most important, most influential talk show host on the right is at Trump himself yesterday. And so really, there is a connection between what happens when, a, when fascism metastasizes and what it leads to. It leads to this kind of chaos and human misery and destruction and uh, us building a position to stop it if we can prevent that takeover of this country. Claire? Uh, I was, no, I was going to say one other thing. That is, as far as Biden, uh, since he's being contradictorily attacked by Republicans, both on a hawkish and on a kind of pro-Putin and China is the problem frame, which also is causing anti-Asian hate. Uh, what Tucker has said about that is terrible. I mean, this week um, that Biden has had followed a unique strategy. It hadn't worked, but he did a full out information campaign to say this is their plan and released intelligence to everyone. This is not our usual play. A lot of people thought that he was uh, out front with this. He turned out to be right. And that was the attempt to put a spotlight on it and to prevent it from happening, which was the best thing he could have tried to do. So he should be applauded for that strategy. And Timothy Schneider, the great Yale uh, uh, philosophy professor who's written about tyranny, very influential right now, pointed out that Biden is the first post-Cold War president to name our limits, that he is saying we will not be in a ground war in, in Ukraine, but we will do everything to try to prevent this and then to, and then to, and then to prevent the invasion from working that is short of that. And so I think that is that, that the administration should be applauded, but quite frankly, if this goes very badly, the Republicans assume they can blame him even contradictorily and, and have an advantage in, their, in the election, which is the only thing they care about. Claire. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, how, you know, so much of the um, you know, partisan fighting, so much of the ideological attacks um, that we've been dealing with have, you know, they, they're this big existential threat to our democracy. It's a slow erosion of our society, all of that that we talk about. And then now all of a sudden we're in this situation where there is a very real and present threat to national security, to global security. And this, and, and instead of, you know, putting aside that, um, you know, you know that that ideological fervor and furor, um, and saying like we as a country just have to be united against this aggression. There are are still pundits on national television, and there are still people who who just have no qualms at all about, um, you know, a- attacking the president, trying to be strong against this. Um, this act of global aggression, um, who who are fine using it and exploiting it to try to um, create further divisions, and it's just 
it's so disheartening, right? Because this, this, for me, this threat feels really big and real and scary. Um, you know, as a millennial, I'm somebody who grew up learning about things like the cold war, um, as these kind of like things that were just in the past. And, you know, I was born at the, that I was born at the very end of, and, and we're just sort of over and the world had come beyond that. Um, and so to, to feel that history, um, creeping back into the present and to see the sort of threat of global war um, um, sort of uh, become a reality again is is really uh, scary. And I think it's just so, it's really, dis, it's really disheartening to hear um, the, yeah, the, the divisiveness and the infighting that, that is, that is coming out of, you know, a lot of elected leaders and national pundits and just sowing more seeds of division at a time when we we should be uniting against um, this sort of this threat of, of aggression and tyranny from Russia. You could argue the way, quite frankly, NATO, the allies have been the last few weeks, right? We could use a dose of that kind of realignment within our own country in terms of just trying to understand yeah. that this is a significant threat that ought not fall in this uh, similar politics. We ought to be debating, right, like how we respond, right? In my mind, right, like how do we not end up going to war, not end up escalating, but acting with moral authority and just, you know, such overwhelming force in Europe and around Europe from uh, those countries and those folks that it changes the dynamic, right, and allows time for sanctions and things like that to happen. But I mean, it seems to me, it's pretty clear, like Ukraine, it's, it's, we know where this is headed. Robert? Think, think, think of it. Uh, Biden has been very successful in uniting Europe. The UN came out very strongly today uh, and with very powerful language. He's unified the world against this and we can't unify our own country. This is exactly the conditions that lead to it to an authoritarian rule, uh, and just as far as the big lie, oh, by, uh, uh, one of Putin's lies is he claims he's engaged in denazification in Ukraine. I mean, you talk about the pot calling the kettle black. With that, folks, we have to uh, take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back. Battleground, Wisconsin. We are really fortunate to have a special guest with us. Um, we we have we spend a lot of time talking about the attacks on public education uh, this week. Even there's a blizzard of bad bills that passed, um, and so we wanted to have our guests on to come and talk about what it's like to be an educator right now in this time when you're under just when educators are under tremendous assault, certainly here in Wisconsin. And so we asked Peggy Wirtz Olson, the president of the Wisconsin uh, Educators Association, to come on and tell us about that. And we're fortunate to have her. Peggy, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk with us. Thank you. Well, uh, my name, as, as was stated, is Peggy Wirtz Olson. I'm the president of WEAC, or the Wisconsin Education Association Council. So we're a union of educators. And Parents and educators right now are doing everything that we can to keep our students safe and learning. 
We know it's been such a challenging year. So I do want to open by thanking our educators for all the great work that they're doing in these really difficult circumstances. We're also closing out Public School Proud Week, where our union is celebrating and lifting up the great work that's happening in our public schools. And it's important to um, ask your audience and remind your audience to thank a teacher, thank an educator, a support professional, a bus driver. You know, the they're doing they're doing everything they can to keep our students safe and learning. Robert, yeah. So we all know, and I think our listeners know, unless they're there are probably a few right wing trolls that are just listening for that reason. But the, the, the bulk of our listeners know how important education is, and to our future. Uh, to to our to all of our children and the opportunity they have, yet we don't really seem to treat that profession the way we other we treat other heralded professions. And the whole first responder, you know, frontline worker thing was very short lived and was much more about you know pat on the back, you know, rhetorically than anything else. And you know, with Act Ten, it was we're going to fund things by taking things away from teachers and vilifying them. And even the whole education, you know, testing and punishing regime makes teaching mechanical rather than allowing these very well-educated professionals who were, who were paid less than professionals at the same education level in other fields, uh, you know, actually practice what they, their profession and educate based on the students in front of them, their own experience that teaching is as much more of an art than it is a science. And so you have dedicated teachers who are the people who love this work and their numbers from any and other places, anecdotally here, of law, including teachers I know personally, where they, they, they're thinking of or planning to leave because the professions become unbearable. And that's a, that's a disaster for our society, anyone who's driving people out of teaching. And I, so I wonder you talk about how serious that is and what we would do uh, to actually address it. Because I think we need our friends to be much more upfront about needing to address this as well as you know, the people who still want they see political value in vilifying teachers and then claim their pro-education. Well, 55% of teachers are saying that they are planning to leave the profession sooner than they had planned. And 90% of NEA members surveyed say that feeling burned out is a serious problem for all the reasons you describe. And Act 10 destroyed the teacher compensation system in Wisconsin. Since then, our salaries have plummeted, our insurance co-pays and deductibles have soared, and that pay gap has widened. All of that is contributing to that growing teacher shortage. So there are solutions. I, I'm pleased to say that I was at a press conference with, with several friends in the legislature this week, where one of the solutions we discussed is starting teacher pay at a threshold of $50,000 and teachers with a master's degree and 20 years of experience earning $100,000. Now there's ways to put multipliers into that system. So there's a clear pathway for educators when they're hired in to understand what they're gonna make, $50,000 walking in the door, helping them pay their student loans off, and then what that would look like throughout their career to keep them in the classroom. 
it feels to me though that um and i want and i want to say this right like obviously you know pay is is the first and foremost um form of respect that we that we should um give to teachers and i and i really dislike this argument that people often make for like why it's okay to underpay public employees which like they're in it because you know, for altruistic reasons, we're in it because we love kids and we care about the future. Like, no, put some respect on their check. So all that set aside first. Um, but it also seems like um, the life of a teacher is really hard right now because of everything that's happening with the pandemic and in the political world, right? Like teachers are went from being sort of like the heroes of the early pandemic transitioning to virtual learning to now, you know, being um, under attack for wanting to protect their safety in schools through COVID protocols to being told by parents or parents and legislators who think that they should um, be able to tell a teacher what the teacher should teach, even though the teacher is the one with the education degree, um, you know, all of this um, um, rhetoric around not being able to talk about racism or things like that, right? Um, so, so I, it seems to me like like the attacks on education are broader than just um, devaluing in a monetary way what a teacher is worth. Um, so, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what that experience is like for teachers right now, and what you think we could do to better support them um, as they go through those challenges. Well, teachers have become a convenient scapegoat in uh, the political rhetoric that we've we've watched as as the pandemic unfolded. I, I appreciate um, your point about the heroes initially. Our, our educators pivoted on a dime, you know, when on the heels of the pandemic in when when things began um, to shift and and did so did so um, at, at great struggle, you know, to, to do that and, and did so well. And then we're lifted up. But again, that easy scapegoat um, in the political sphere is a space that that's unfortunate. We've watched educators, um, you know, fall um, victim to, to angry parents. And um, I know that from my own experience as an educator and talking with educators across the state, Parents have always been our allies. Educators are the heart of our community. They're respected professionals within the community. And so I wouldn't say it's the vast majority of folks who have, have moved in that direction in terms of, of these alarming attacks. I'd say it's a very small vocal minority. And when, when parents and educators are on the same, on the same page, which is largely um, what happens um, in, in typical times in, in a field of education, our students win. So we need to ratchet down that political rhetoric and, and remind parents that educators are their neighbors, their friends, their family members, and doing this for their kids. Robert. It's interesting how much their willingness there is to politicize education just for political advance. That's what Act 10 was, right? Um, that, that is certainly what's happened in COVID, where it's understandable why parents are so frustrated. And you probably have thoughts on this, but also school, a lot of schools, most did not use the American Rescue Plan money the way it was intended to make schools safe. And so educators trying to make sure they did so and make it safe, then get scapegoated. And then with critical race theory, they see it as a huge electoral issue, which is just going to make it hell to teach if you're gonna have 
right-wing censors scrutinizing everything. They want to do things like make every teacher put their curriculum online so every right-wing group can, can distort it and attack it. Why would anyone continue in such a profession? Am I, am I interpreting all of this right, Peggy, how, uh, how this just makes the situation much worse and we should be doing the opposite? You are in terms of the uphill battle we're facing, right? Which is which is why educators are, are expressing that level of burnout, that level of uh, sense of of leaving the profession. The answer is is respect and um, and reverence back into the profession of education. I I know I know why I want I wanted to be a teacher. I know why why colleagues of mine have gone into the profession. We do care about kids at the end of the day, and we we need to be able to teach the true history of of what's happened in this country and um, and help students see a path forward, an optimistic path forward. Well, Peggy really appreciate you taking the time with us today to, first of all, bring this perspective, remind all of our listeners. I think you started on the right note and I'm going to echo this. We need to, we need to tell teachers thanks more. We need to be engaged and remind that remind everyone how challenging this has been for all of us to go through the last two years. It's been doubly hard on educators. Also want to thank you. We believe so strongly in organized labor and uh, workers coming together and having their rightful say in the workplace. And so we really appreciate you as a leader uh, uh, at, at WEAC doing that and taking the time to come and talk with us today, uh, Peggy, very much. Well, thank you. It, it's been my pleasure. And we, we as educators know that when we stand together, um, we'll stand strong. So thank you. I just say we're really excited about your presidency. We, you're, you're new in your presidency and you have a really strong vision. So we're really looking forward to working with you. Excellent. Well, thank you. Likewise. And with that, folks, we have to uh, take a break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Again, you can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. So please check us out there. We post fairly regularly. You can hear what we're thinking, find out what we're doing. And of course, we want to encourage you to become a member of Citizen Action. You should join one of our organizing co-ops. Uh, we are constantly working and fighting for the agenda that we care deeply about, including that this week. We were fighting and continuing the fight to keep a lot of public attention on our federal agenda, in particular, what is going to be next after Build Back Better. We've talked extensively about this. There will be some uh, a next federal legislation, and we want to get that push going. And this week, we did a media event with Congresswoman Gwen Moore and other community and labor leaders. Robert, you were a part of that. We were focusing on not only... Um, the jobs that have already uh, come through the infrastructure package, but just how critical uh, additional federal legislation is to really move the jobs needle here, not only in Milwaukee, but statewide and throughout this country around transitioning to a green economy. Yeah, what we were talking about is uh, the last 40 plus years, the new economy, the, the deindustrialization, the move to a corporate rigged global economy which pits worker against worker has been terrible for Wisconsin and terrible for 
previously prosperous industrial cities like we're seeing in Milwaukee. You see devastating in, devastation in Wausau, lots of places around Wisconsin. And so since we're at the cusp and we need to be to prevent a climate disaster of a new green economy, our pitch was is that Wisconsin should be out front in wanting this, that we should not have a stake in this current economy. It's been highly unequal and it's, it's actually either stagnated income or lowered them for a lot of people in real terms in this state and create a lot less opportunity. And in fact, the rage over that has caused a lot of the right-wing backlash, ironically, though they have, they have no solutions other than more of it. Uh, so frankly, we've already, the infrastructure bill money that's already passed, the bipartisan bill, uh, the jobs haven't been created yet. A lot of it's discretionary and, and people have to apply. And so it's critical we have really forward-looking plans that actually employ the folks who are locked out of the economy. And that's not just the unemployed. Unemployment number is misleading. It is people still looking for work who aren't discouraged. The labor force participation rates includes people who have given up are historically high right now. It's partly because of caregiving burdens on women. It's partly because in the African-American community in Milwaukee, uh, not enough people are even prepared for the jobs that exist or, or, or have the ability to land them. They, when new jobs occur, people already positioned to get them from the suburbs get them. And so this is a twofer. We need to develop plans like the climate action planning at the state level, very visionary in Milwaukee going on that Citizen Action is a part of, and then in, in other cities in different stages. And then we need to actually fight for that money, but it'll be even bigger and even bolder if we pass other parts of the bill back better, and a lot of analysts think that the piece most likely to pass, and of course Ukraine delays all of this, is um, the half trillion in climate expenditures. Uh, Senator Manchin already signed off on that. There seems to be 50 votes. It's not one of the things Senator Cinema has raised objections to. So we ought to be able to do it. Current projection as of yesterday, uh, hearing directly from, say, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, is the administration plans to take another run in late April, May. And so we need to be ready for that because, and then we need to be ready with the plans that make this have the biggest impact for people locked out of the economy and the biggest impact on climate because we do have a, a deadline by 2030 to cut emissions in half. And we've probably increased emissions every year, so, even with democratic proposals on the table. So folks, we're gonna continue to keep pressure on. Uh, Robert mentioned it. There's an expectation this April or May, there's going to be another big push. We are going to start that push. That's why you got to get involved in citizen action. That's why you need to join our organizing co-ops. We're pushing back. Claire, I'm coming at you. Need to talk next about the crapola that is moving through the legislature. There's a lot of it. You I brought to our attention last week, it highlighted some bad Medicaid bills that were moving. Unfortunately, Claire, it looks like those bills did pass the Senate this week. Ah, Claire. Ah, ah indeed. Uh, yeah, exceptionally frustrating, exceptionally disappointing, and also exceptionally unsurprising. Uh, so as a reminder for folks, these are bills that would um, force people off of their um, better care coverage, um, and also off of other Medicaid programs that they use. Um, so people with long-term disabilities, for example, use programs through Medicaid and better care that are um, not just related to their health coverage. Um, so these are bills 
that would uh, force people to, as a reminder, um, force people to reapply for their coverage every six months from scratch. And it would force um, people to lose their coverage if they turned down um, hours, promotions, or um, wage increases in order to maintain their coverage. So functionally forcing people into the expansion gap. Um, so these uh, passed the legislature, um, as one remind folks, that these bills were drafted so broadly that their Republican authors didn't realize how bad they were, that they found out during the hearings for the bills how bad that they were, and that the bills did more than the authors intended, um, and they just sort of shrugged and passed them anyways. So uh, as a reminder, that's what those are. Um, they did pass this week, and now they go to the governor's desk. Um, we feel pretty good that he's likely to veto them, um, especially since we've been pretty successful in drawing attention to them, um, but we should not be taking that for granted. So we need to make sure Governor Reaper knows he needs to veto these bad bills. Yeah, look, uh, these are awful. And uh, Claire, we really appreciate you bringing, highlighting attention. There were a whole host of groups who sent out releases yesterday. Uh, really trashing how awful these were and particularly, you know, I mean, right down to what these, how these impact folks with disabilities, and families, and caregivers, just, it's awful. Uh, Robert, just want to give you an opportunity, any comments on this? And then I do want us to say, and I think it's worth us highlighting that we are going to have some legislation that we're about to launch that actually will show where we ought to be moving. But Robert, I wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any thoughts on these particular bills? Well, think about the broader situation. We have a situation where not enough people have access to badger care in our state, where we're voluntarily turning down federal money and costing ourselves a huge amount in order to say we're against the Affordable Care Act, right? And their idea, and, and by the way, tons of other people don't have affordable health care. It continues to skyrocket because the do-nothing legislature does nothing because they're in bed with the healthcare industry. And then they turn and vilify the people because of low incomes, because they have no strategy to raise wages and create opportunity, right? They just want more economic growth that goes to the top, right? Uh, to vilify those people, that they're the problem. They're not working because we're giving them health care. No evidence to support that. It, ne it never bears out. States that um, have very harsh rules like this, saying the Deep South do not have higher labor, labor force participation rates at all. Uh, states that went and removed unemployment benefits prematurely, gave away federal money during uh, COVID-19, they did not get more people coming back to work. But it doesn't matter in a certain sense because they've still created a scapegoat, and it's a racialized scapegoat, remember. And so in many ways, people with disabilities are the collateral damage of that. And it's not mostly people of color in a state like Wisconsin that have badger care, but they are more likely to because they're more low income because of structural racism. So this is dog whistle politics and not focusing on people's real problems. And just like in, we've talked about the race class narrative, we need to do is show people what it's really about and then show them what would really provide them with affordable health care and to humanize this, the kind of people like home care workers who are turning down hours to keep their health insurance because of the artificially low badger care limit they've created. We're now going to say, oh, we're going to toss you off your health care now when you are providing a vital service that there's already a shortage of home care workers for the disabled and, and, uh, and, and seniors. Yeah. And 
I mentioned this last week. This is not, this isn't, this isn't legislating. This isn't governing. If it was, they'd be in a legitimate conversation with the governor about what are we going to do if they were legitimately governing on education and we haven't even had the chance to talk about the slew of bad education bills. I know we are fortunate to have the uh, WEAC president tell us about how this impacts folks, but like, come on, same thing, Robert, you were mentioning dog whistle folks. They passed a bill this week to break up Milwaukee public school district. No conversation of that. No, like really like seriously, that's the governing that's going on. Right. And nobody who supports who's from Milwaukee voted for that. You know, it's there's not governing going on. Robert, you said it. This is all politics. And Claire, really appreciate that you brought this up because this issue, especially around Medicaid and Badger Care, just demonstrates, you know, that they're willing to sacrifice people for political leverage. Now, fortunately, I think Governor Evers will veto this, so it's not going to happen, but it was all it will all happen. Red meat. Rebecca if Rebecca Clayfish is governor. Absolutely. And it is all a distraction, right? Like we say it's the incompetent MPS and the structure of the school system, not that we have a structurally racist education funding system that greatly funds schools with high property taxes per capita and underfunds uh, areas of poverty where the kids need more support, not less. And with that, folks, we got to take a break. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. Folks, uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to remind you all again. I brought it up at the beginning of the show, but the United Auto Workers at Oshkosh Company are having this fight uh, to create, to, to land a contract with the United States Postal Service to produce the next fleet, the next generation of postal vehicles. Uh, and these vehicles should be made here in Wisconsin, in Oshkosh, and they should be electric. It is a no-brainer. Unfortunately, this has gotten political. Uh, it looks like these might be built... The plan is to build them in South Carolina now, non-union and mostly gas. So it's a horrible idea. And the workers uh, at the UAW and, and from Oshkosh are fighting back. And this Saturday, there's a rally in Oshkosh. We'll have the deets, the location and everything. And there's ways you can uh, park and there'll be shuttles. But it's at noon on Saturday. Please, if you can make it out, show support. We're going to continue down the road to keep talking about Senator Johnson's role in all this and the fact that Senator Johnson has done nothing to try to save these jobs. If anything, has supported them leaving. So, folks, make sure you make it to uh, uh, to Oshkosh this weekend if you can. Um, next up, well, first of all, Claire, you had to quick run away. I wanted to make sure there wasn't anything else you wanted to add about some of the things that were happening in the state legislature. Oh, well, there's just so many bad things happening in the state legislature. <laughs> How much time do we have? Well, in particular, uh, you know, as a former school board member, I know we had, uh, you know, our WEAC president on, but we really, I mean, it was amazing how many pieces of bad anti-public education bills moved this week. We, we removed, they voted to remove caps on 
the voucher system, right, mm-hmm. folks? This is a system that started supposedly as something, you know, that was going to help lower income folks have access to, to other schools. Now they want to lift the caps to everyone. Uh, the pupil caps. Uh, I mentioned breakup MPS. Uh, I could, there's more. Claire, any, I mean, uh, this former MPS school board member, I'm sure your, <laughs> your current colleagues were all consulted by Senator uh, Darling before she voted for this? Oh, yeah. Senator Darling has a long track record of taking into account what local school board officials think about uh, her legislation attacking them. Uh, no, sh- assuredly, she did not in any substantive way do that. Um, although she's really good, my memory is, of uh, pretending like she will uh, you know, meet with the officials and the lobbyists and everything but um of course we'll just do whatever she wants um no so the i mean it's there's not much to say that we haven't already said right i mean these are clearly bills that are aimed at um attacking and destroying public education um as the sort of institution that um tries to create a level playing field for everyone in our community in favor of funneling public funds to private institutions private religious institutions that are um, outside the reach of um, largely government regulation, public, I should say, regulation, um, and is largely a way of propping up what at one time were, um, were um, flailing uh, parochial schools um, as, as folks moved, they started to uh, move children away from um, their, their private parish schools um, and put them in public schools. Those institutions lost a lot of funding and the voucher system, um, I, I think there's a lot of credible analysis says was, was largely created to help bolster um, those private religious institutions. Um, and they use language around parental choice to help justify that um, and create this vicious cycle where the schools are attacked and defunded um, and therefore start to struggle. And then they say, look, the s- schools are struggling. We need to create more opportunities for kids to go elsewhere um, and, um, you know, really create a problem and then purport to solve it in a way that only um, reinforces what they're, you know, what they're doing to, to harm us. Um, I think these are these bills, um, especially around breaking up of the district's largest or the state's largest school district are particularly insidious. Um, I hope that other public school districts around the state, you may think I don't, I'm not from Milwaukee. Why should I care about this? Um, it, there is a clear, clear track record in Wisconsin of what happens to the Milwaukee public schools will happen in other districts. Um, think about school choice, starting in Milwaukee, expanding into Racine and now existing statewide. Um, takeover legislation starting in Milwaukee, then going into other districts as well. Um, And you think about even rural school districts um, that are being forced to close and merge districts and schools because they are um, losing students. Um, So, so it is, it is something that if you don't live in Milwaukee, you should still be concerned about because it could happen to you and your kids districts next. Can can you imagine folks that the state legislature overnight with no consultation, no hearings, no nothing, just oh, we're going to break up Wausau school district. We're going to break up your local school district where you live. It's appalling and come to a place on you folks. They want to, they just passed a bill to have vouchers for everyone. They want to run a separate, a second, an entire second school district. 
It's absurd. And it's amazing to me that this is politically popular and it could only happen on a week where we have to start the show talking about, you know, historic things happening in Ukraine, the amazing landslide of bad bills that this just gets lost in. But can you imagine in one week we have a bill to break up a district with no discussion and to and to essentially create two, a private and a public? It's, it's insane, Robert. I want to point out, Matt pointed out, they would never do this to Wausau or Rhinelander, just naming some cities that are predominantly white, but they would to Milwaukee. Why? It's racialized again. So just as the right is is claiming that we're in a post-racial age, think about it. There's this implicit assumption, they're not going to name it, though some of them are are so um, uncareful they do, uh, that that's why, that Milwaukee's incompetent. It's a majority-minority city. Therefore, we smart right people in the suburbs who have a lot more money to spend in education but and have kids who are privileged comparatively, and we're more successful, and we know what to do. By the way, they're not sending their kids to voucher schools. You'll notice some of them are, but they're not undermining the, the education systems in, in Waukesha County the way they want to in Milwaukee. Uh, but I will give credit where credit is due. You can probably hear the irony in my voice, dripping irony, and that is the national Republicans are refusing to have an agenda, Mitch McConnell. They just want to run against Biden. It, the, the Republicans here, at least, are telling us what they would do if they win the governorship and they're successful in gerrymandering the legislature for another uh, 10 years. And the shocking thing here is they assume it doesn't matter. They assume through gerrymandering, through cultural politics, they can pass anything and no one will notice, no matter how unpopular, no matter how bad public policy. So think about that. If you want, we're not in a post-racial age, but we're in a post-policy stage which in our age, which means we're in a post or quasi twilight of democracy phase. Because if you're not going to if people aren't going to be elected and unelected based on good or bad public policy, then in what sense is it a democracy? It, it, it's absurd. I'm, I am so glad we had the president from WEAC on today because this week is so bad. I can't, I mean, folks, can you, can you imagine an idea where you, we would make a decision to overnight create two public, two, two school systems in the state and break up an entire district with no discussion, no debate. Oh. No, like it's insane. It's not legislating. It shows how just how messed up things are. And that the, the white population of Milwaukee is concentrated. So if you have a lot more school districts, guess what? We can have even more segregated districts. Think about that. I just I'm. I'm very like it, it, it does amaze me. It just shows how, when you have an avalanche and it has been an avalanche of bad ideas uh, since the, <laughs> since the last election, Matt, uh, that stuff when they just tell gets you lost. Who they are, when they tell you who they are, believe them. I oh. think a, a very good at it. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, but before we go, um, we have news that we want to uh, announce around our national network that we're involved in. We're in People's Action. Uh, it is a national network. That's It's relatively young. I think we're only about five or six years old. And certainly Citizen Action played a, a, a central role in helping 
bring about and create people's action, we believe really strongly in the importance of being aligned and having powerful national networks that can compete uh, in this uh, uh, world of ideas. Robert, real quick, uh, we have a new executive director. Yeah, let me give a word on what it is, because people don't all know organizing networks. Um, and that is, uh, traditionally, groups like ours who are independent in states and cities, we created networks among ourselves to try to aggregate our power to have statewide power, national power, to do things like play a role in congressional policy. And some of us, I was one of the original four, I believe, directors of affiliates, decided to do something very hard and merge a number of networks into one much bigger one, People's Action. And that's been very successful. And we have a lot more power, a lot more money, national money and capacity. It helps us in Wisconsin elections and with our policy. And we have a whole lot of thought partners, 50, over 50 organizations in over 30 states. And our founding director was George Gale, who was a very visionary organizer. And he is being replaced now. It was a, it was a very difficult process. And I was on the hiring committee with an incredible candidate, Soma Arias, who is a uh, she was a, an uncompanied minor who came here from El Salvador. She was a very successful leader of an organization like, like Citizen Action Wisconsin in Kansas, of all places. And she has since been leading the whole network of groups that works on immigration rights reform. That, uh, that network firm includes both Stella Frontera here in Wisconsin. So she, is, she considers People's Action her home organizing home. And she is very close friends with George, a founding director. So she is going to take us to new heights and new levels. And uh, she is an organizer's organizer. You're not likely to see her on cable news. She is someone who's listening and organizing and figuring out how we're going to actually build power and win. All right. And with that, folks, we got to wrap up the show. We'll have Solma on down the road. Uh, very exciting news. We look forward to hearing more uh, news coming out of our national network. With that, though, folks, we got to wrap it up. We want to thank our guest, the president from WEAC, Peg Works Olson. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us. And with that, we'll see y'all next week here at the Battleground, Wisconsin. <laughs>